Well, amen. If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, find two passages with me this morning. First, find Acts chapter 20. Make sure to have a little marker there, maybe your notes, maybe if you have a bookmark, whatever it is. And then find 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible or device with you, to have that ready. We're going to be in several different places together this morning. So Acts chapter 20 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 to begin. And I'm going to read Acts chapter 20, verse 28, and then 1 Timothy, the whole chapter of 1 Timothy chapter 3. The Word of God says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. And then 1 Timothy chapter 3 says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is the word of God. So we're in week five of a series on the church, and we come to a topic that for many might seem irrelevant. Well, why should we care a lot about leadership in the church? Maybe you think, great, this is finally the Sunday where I can catch up on my nap in church today. Who really cares about elders and deacons? I mean, so many churches do it so much, so different, and they structure these things so different. It seems confusing and distant and irrelevant to what's going on to my life. But I would argue it's anything but irrelevant because what we believe about the leadership of the church tells us what we actually believe about the church itself. And that as leadership goes, so goes the church. Consider with me two pictures of church leadership that are prevalent in the world today. And let me tell you, I share these from personal experience because when you start telling folks you're a pastor out in the world, you get a lot of weird reactions from folks. So I come to these from, from personal experience. Here's one of the two reactions. Look, look at this first reaction, what first thing people think about. <laughs> you may not know who this guy is. This is Marshall Applewhite. He was the leader of a cult in the late 90s. Uh, some of you might have, might have remembered this made the news. The, this cult, they believed that their spirits were going to be picked up on a spaceship that followed behind this comet and take them to a higher plane of existence. So they ate uh, drug-induced applesauce together and 
you know, all 40 people that were there that day ended their lives together. So some people, when they begin to think that, about faith, lead, about leadership in a community of faith, they think about guys like that. They think about abusive leadership or weird, wacko cult leaders. And let me say this. There are weird, wacko cult leaders out there in the world. Sadly, there is leadership that can be abused and people can be led astray. It's really a heartbreaking reality. And the Bible even warns about that, doesn't it? It says there's going to be false prophets. There's going to be false leaders who are going to disguise themselves as servants of God, all while doing the work of the devil. And James 3, 1 warns, if you're going to follow an apple in Marshall Applewhite's footsteps, the word of God would say, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Don't worry, Marshall Applewhite didn't get away with anything. God will take care of it. And cult leaders and and abusive leaders like that are are the answer to the question of why leadership like this matters. When you have influence and you combine it with faith, things can really begin to get messy in folks' life. Abusive leadership is a real threat, not only to us individually, but to the mission of the gospel through the church. So I say all that to say, leadership does matter. And God has far better than wacko cult leaders for his people. But let me give you a second extreme that people often think about. They think, what does a pastor do every day? They think about this. Rather than jumping to abusive leadership, people think really about kind of apathetic, easy leadership. People think, well, I mean, it's not that hard to lead a bunch of sheep around, is it? I mean, it can't be that hard to be a pastor. You only work one day a week, right? And they're just sheep you're leading around. Let me tell you, yes, the Bible says that leaders in the church are shepherds. Let me tell you, leading a flock isn't easy, and it certainly does take more than one day a week to do. If you're a pastor, if you ever, if there's ever a pastor that you've been under who only works one day a week, he's not doing his job. In fact, in smaller churches like ours, churches, the average church in America is around 80 on a Sunday morning. So in in an average church that only has one uh, pastor in leadership, I can tell you for many I know in this community, many work some 60 to 80 hours a week. They're the administrators of all things that go on in the church. They're the counselors night and day, anytime people need guidance and love. And that doesn't include when funerals and weddings come up from time to time. They also have to prep and study and prepare a message. And think about a message as like a well-researched college paper that you have to come and give a, a, a presentation in front of everybody about. You really have to have all of your, all of your stuff together. And then combine the modern responsibilities of social media, keeping up with the culture, keeping up with what in the world's going on with COVID this week. Add on top of that evangelism. And then they have families and other things that they have to do. So simply put, friends, leadership of any kind, but particularly in the local church, can't be done half-heartedly and isn't something that is easy to pursue. Let me tell you something. When you lead sheep, sometimes sheep bite, and they can bite really, really hard. So this idea, a picture people have in their mind of a gentle shepherd with gentle sheep just, just isn't what it's about because a lazy shepherd is no shepherd at all. And so the Bible would have us avoid both of those extremes that often come to people's mind and think about the leadership and the community of faith. And in fact, I would say that this is deeply relevant, not only to our faith family, but for your personal life. So we consider together leadership, or if you want the theological word, the polity of the local church. And let's start at the top. Let's start at the very, very top. The local church is governed by Jesus. Let's start. When I say top, we're going all the way to the top. And consider Acts 20, 28 that we read at the start of the service. Look there at that with me again. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock which the Holy Spirit's made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. The last part of that really needs to get our first attention because Jesus is the one who has obtained the church with his own blood. There's no leader 
no pastor, no member who has loved this church more than Jesus has because he shed his blood to make it his. The church belongs, first and foremost, to Jesus. Consider with me Colossians chapter 1 that gets at this reality. Look at this. He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Did you see that again? Verse 18, he is the head of the church. In other words, you can see this in your notes. There's one true sense in which Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. You can have a a guy with a title like that all you want, but Jesus, friends, he's the CEO. He's the one in charge. Hebrews chapter 13 says that he is the great shepherd or the great pastor of the sheep. He's the rock upon which the church is built, the one through who his spirit is leading and guiding his body. Revelation chapter 1 opens with John having a vision, and he writes to seven churches. And we're told that Jesus walks among those churches and is king over them. Jesus is the boss. Not one individual, not one person. Jesus is the one who rules the church through his word, the Bible. And this is why we must consider church leadership, and we have to look at what the Bible has to say. Jesus has given us a guide as to how the church is to be led, and current business practices, current cultural trends, even the latest in management and leadership theory are only good if they are founded upon Jesus as the rock. No organization can call itself a church where Jesus is not its head. No pope is meant to lead us, nor a living prophet. Because let me tell you, our pope and our prophet and and our priest and our king is in heaven. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the senior pastor of every local church. The king of heaven who came to earth to win his bride with his blood. But... We do see that God does put human, imperfect leadership underneath Jesus to be under shepherds. The church is governed by Jesus, but second, the local church is meant to be led by elders. The local church is led by elders. Look back at Acts 20, verse 28 again. Look back there. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Who's who's yourselves there? Now, Paul actually wasn't speaking to everybody or to just anybody there. He's actually speaking particularly to the elders in Ephesus. If you look back, if you have your Bible open, scroll your eyes up to verse 17 of Acts 20 and see this. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So Paul here was speaking to the local elders there in Ephesus, and we see that the earliest church was led by a team of elders over each congregation. And Paul begins to speak to these elders about his own experience and journey and ministry among them before giving them exhortation about how they're to lead their ministry. And in in this exhortation, he actually opens up for us what exactly elders exist to do. So see in your notes, what do elders do? First, elders shepherd the flock through teaching. It's the first point, that elders shepherd the flock through teaching. Teaching. Notice the language again of verse uh, 28. This is the language of shepherding. Paul warns them to pay careful attention to the flock among them. And Paul warns the Ephesian elders to guard the flock from false teaching. Look again at verse 29. Look at verse 29 of Acts chapter 20. Look at this. Now I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, 
remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Notice he says these wolves are going to speak twisted things. They're going to draw disciples after themselves rather than after God. And he says they're going to rise up even among you. These are going to be people they're going to know and they're going to have a relationship with. And he calls the elders to shepherd the flock by teaching the truth and guarding from deception. And Paul gives his own example. He says, hey, I labored among you for three years with tears admonishing you, and now I've commended you to the word of God and to his grace. Elders shepherd the flock through teaching. But second, elders oversee the church through leading. Elders oversee the church through leading. Look again at verse 28. Look at this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You see that? Made you overseers. The, the word there can be translated as ruler, supervisor, And while Jesus is the senior pastor, he has given elders to be overseers, a sort of middle management, so to speak, to look over and guide and lead the daily affairs of the church led by the senior leader, Jesus. And so Paul is is laying out for us here before these elders, hey, Make sure you're shepherding through teaching. Make sure you're overseeing the church through leading. But he also elsewhere gives requirements for these elders. He lays out, here's sort of the job description, what you need, what what needs to be present in their life. And that's actually part of what the book of 1 Timothy is all about. So look over, we read 1 Timothy chapter 3. Flip over there and look, we're given three requirements. Three requirements for elders in a local church. Look at this. And we see first that elders must be men with a calling. That elders must be men with a calling. That's the first requirement there. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. You see it? He says, hey, someone here needs to aspire, feel called, feel driven to this. And if he aspires to it, he aspires to a noble task. And he calls the role of elder here the office of overseer. This might sound unusual, but throughout the New Testament, the terms elder and pastor and overseer are actually used pretty interchangeably. They actually describe different aspects of the same office. Think about the the president of the United States. You can call that person, regardless of how you may feel about him, you can call that person the president, the chief executive, or the commander-in-chief. And each of those titles describe a different aspect of what they do. And so it's the same with church leadership. Sometimes Paul will talk about overseers and put emphasis on their oversight over the church. Sometimes he calls them elders, which comes from back in the Old Testament where where the people would judge what's going on and offer advice to people. And other times they use pastor to give the emphasis upon shepherding the people of God. All different all different titles to put on the same role. And so when we see overseer or elder or pastor, it's speaking of the same office. And 1 Timothy 3.1 says that this is something that is a noble calling. This is something that God has to call someone to. Recall Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that it was the Holy Spirit that sets one aside to be an elder among the people of God. Elders must be people with a calling. Elders must be men with a calling. But second, 
We said that elders must be men with character. Elders must be men with character. It's incredible. Paul's list here of what's a requirement for an elder, there's a lot of stuff that if you go read a lot about this, what what, what church blogs and what the, the gurus of the Christian world would say, they would include a lot of stuff that, that Paul didn't even have in view here. Look what he says, verse 2. What do we look for? What's a requirement for an elder? Look at this. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he may be well thought of by outs- he must be well thought of by outsiders that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So notice, verse 2, he lays out seven positive characteristics of an elder. Be above reproach, sober-minded, hospitable, be a husband of one wife, literally be a one-woman man. Verse 3, he gives negatives of what an elder should not be. Don't be a drunkard. Don't be violent. Don't be a lover of money. And then verses 3 to 7, he offers three considerations. Consider how he leads his household. Consider whether he's a, a recent convert and going to ha- let, the, let, the, let leadership go to his head. And then consider if he's well thought of by non-believers. Does he have actual relationships with non-church people? And can he have a good relationship with them? In fact, notice in that list, there's only one skill Paul says they need to have. He says, be able to teach. And I think that can look a lot of different ways. I think that doesn't necessarily have to mean that every person who's, 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 who's an elder has to be able to stand up and just give the best sermon in the world before everybody. But I do think it means they, they need to understand the things of the faith and be able to, in some sense, articulate them to other people, whether that's in Bible studies, groups, whatever that might look like. But Notice, it doesn't say elders need to know everything that's going on in the culture. It doesn't say that leadership in the church needs to be eloquent or attractive. It doesn't say that they need to be, you'll you'll read a a lot of the modern sort of, what are we looking for? And they'll say they need to be entrepreneurial, whatever that means, right? It seems like they're watching more Shark Tank than they are reading the Bible, right? It says, hey, the point here is that an elder, leadership in the church, must be primarily defined by their character. They can have competencies in all kinds of areas, but they need to be people who have character because if that's missing, the core competency is missing. Elders must be men of character. And finally, third, elders must be men who care. Elders must be men who care. Did you see that in verse 5? We're we're very quick to, I think, read over this. Look at this. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You got to care for people. You got to have, as they say, tough skin and a soft heart. You got to have a tough skin and soft heart. They need to be in it to actually care for the people, not for the position, not for power, not for influence, not for anything else, but because they love and care for people. Elders lead the church by teaching and by overseeing the body of Christ. And I think think it's also important to notice that elders is always in the plural. When you see them together, sure, it'll, it'll give an individual elder when it's talking about their qualifications. But everywhere you see elders in the New Testament, they're always in the plural. Consider, for example, uh, 1 Timothy 5.17. Look at this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. In Ephesus, there were elders, plural. (laughs) Eldership means God's church is led by a team of, of men who meet these qualifications. 
But it does say, hey, even, even if they're led by a team, there may be those who may have a particular calling to labor in preaching and teaching, who, though, though led by a team, that they may be particularly called or gifted to teach and lead in a unique way. In fact, it's interesting, in the New Testament, they really don't make so much a distinction between pastor and elder as much as they do between elders who labor in preaching and teaching and thus are worthy of double honor and those who simply lead alongside them. Between those who might receive some sort of compensation and be in quote-unquote full-time ministry and those who may not and may be bivocational or maybe just a lay person who meets these qualifications. This is what the Bible presents us as eldership because While Jesus governs the church, he's given qualified, called, competent men of character to lead the church through teaching and through oversight. But there's a little more that that Paul has going on, right? He says, yeah, the local church is governed by Jesus and led by elders, but Paul doesn't finish there, does he, in 1 Timothy? He keeps going in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and he brings us to see that the local church is served by deacons, is served by deacons. And friends, this is where a lot of churches have gone astray. Let me tell you, we're fortunate. There's a lot of churches where they have one pastor or elder, and they've got a whole bunch of deacons, and man, they're his boss. They're breathing over his neck. He, he runs and hides. He's scared of the deacons meeting. He cowers in fear of them. Have you ever, you've probably been in churches like that. And yet, the biblical model is a plurality of elders who lead together and deacons who are servants in the church. And in many churches, they get that backwards. They, they put deacons into the elder position and often maybe not with the qualifications while expecting the pastor to serve more in a servant role, except he also now needs to preach and teach before people. And let's consider, when we consider deacons, the same questions we ask with the elders. What do they do, and and what are their requirements? So what do deacons do? We need to just see this. Deacons do not lead the church. Deacons serve the church. Deacons serve the church. At, at Crossroads, the, the way we tend to speak about deacons is if you, if you lead one of our ministries, you're basically doing what a deacon in the New Testament would have been doing. They would have been serving worship team, tech, hospitality, kids, whatever that looks like. That would have been what, what, what deacons would have done in the first century. They serve the church by meeting a particular need within or without the body. And Paul gives us two requirements for deacons. Two, two requirements. What's the job description? And this is going to sound familiar. Look at verse 8. 1 Timothy 3, verse 8. This should sound familiar. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, and let them, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence that is in, in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. First, the first requirement is that a deacon must be a person or people of character. Deacons must be people of character. Much of the list is identical to what we just saw regarding elders, but with a few exceptions, right? First, if you notice, we don't see any requirement that they be able to teach, and that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to teach, just that it's not a requirement for them, and, and no expectation that they be leading, but rather serving. We also see that unlike the New Testament, when you look at what the New Testament here says about elders, it doesn't say anything about their wives, but in there in verse 11, if you notice, it says, let their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things, and it's very likely here that what was going on is 
either deacons would serve as couples, and so the, the husband and wife would serve together. It's also possible that Paul here is bringing up, hey, the, de- the, the deaconesses that are serving, here's what you need to be like. I, I think the New Testament was open to the idea of women serving in these service, these deacon, deaconessing roles. And I think uh, Romans chapter 16 is a perfect example of this. Look, Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Look what Paul says. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant, same word as deacon, of the church that is in Sincrea. So I think here, if you notice the differences, either deacons actually have a higher moral code to meet because they also have to have certain requirements on their wife, or I think what Paul's better getting at is that, hey, those who are wives who are serving as deaconesses, make sure to be like this. Or the word there can even be translated simply as women who are serving in these roles. Make sure to be dignified, sober-minded, you know, the same character that would be upon any leader in the church. And in fact, we actually see that in the, in the New Testament, deacons were doing much, the, much of the same thing that the women at Jesus's uh, that some of the early disciples of Jesus that were women were doing, caring for the needs of the poor and helping to meet various needs within the body. So there must be people of a character, but also, second, there must be people of conviction. People of conviction. Notice verse 9 again. Look at this. They must hold firm, hold to the faith firm in a clear conscience. Friends, it's not as if elders need theology and deacons don't. It's not as if, well, pastors need to know the Bible, but really it doesn't matter if, if those who are serving out there know anything about the Bible. No, deep, growing love and knowledge of God's Word is for everybody. And in fact, it's out of this conviction that deacons serve. Because they want the word of God to get the spotlight, they're willing to serve in the background where nobody may see. They're willing to do things in the background so that the word of God would get the attention in the spotlight. And it's actually out of this conviction that the first deacons were called back in Acts chapter 6. You're welcome to look there with me, but Acts chapter 6, here's what we see was going on. Now, in those days when the disciples were increasing in number, this is not too long after the day of Pentecost, when thousands came to faith in Jesus, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So notice there was a need. These Hellenist widows, that's a people group among these people, their widows were being missed in the daily distribution of food for whatever reason that was going on. And so what we see is that the early uh, leadership created a ministry team to meet the need. Let's keep reading. Look at this. And the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. We will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Notice, they set aside these people to help meet this need so that the apostles, the leaders, could be freed up to continue preaching the word of God unhindered. They, they had the solid conviction that the word of God mattered. And so they became, he said, servers of tables. Think of waiters helping the word of God to be served up as the meal to as many people as possible. They wanted the word to have the spotlight, so they chose to serve in the background. And the apostles chose people of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, and put them on the job. And they did so so they could devote themselves to the ministry of prayer and of the word. And, and look what happens when deacons are deaconing, as they should. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let me say this. Good church governance is a good witness. So what we see there, they organized, they helped meet this need, they made sure that they were structured the way they should be. 
and people came to faith. How many churches are not reaching people as they should simply because their church isn't structured as God would have them to be structured? And friends, this is all a part of the mission of God because the local church is central to the mission of God. The ministry of the local church is governed by Jesus. He's CEO, senior pastor, the top dog, right? And he leads through his word. He's given elders to lead as under shepherds, to teach and to oversee. He's given deacons to serve and to meet specific needs in particular places. And finally, the local church is meant to have ministry carried out by members, ministry carried out by members. This is so important. And if you don't hear anything else that I've said to you, if it's all sounded like Charlie Brown, I want you to focus with me for the next, next few minutes because this is so important. Because you don't need to have a position to have a role to play. In fact, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us something incredible that we need to take to heart. Look at this. Ephesians 4.11. And he, that's Jesus, gave the apostles prophets, evangelists, the shepherd teachers. These are various roles, leadership roles. Some are temporary like the apostles. Some are ongoing like the shepherds and teachers. And why did he give them? He gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Church leadership is given to equip the saints to do the work of ministry, not to do all the work of ministry. And friends, many become, have become very apathetic to the idea of doing the work of ministry. Many think that, well, we've got leadership, they're doing it all. Or they come in and they go, well, I mean, I, I have a great experience when I'm here, and if I didn't, that would be whenever I would step up and help to meet a need. But God's word to us as he speaks to us on leadership is to awaken all of us to consider, what's my role Where do I fit into all of this? Do we not care enough because we've been so used to letting leadership take care of everything when it's actually our job to take care of some of it? Do we outsource kingdom work to others while enjoying all the benefits? Do we want to say we're on the team yet sit on the sidelines and never get in the game? When biblical, healthy church leadership is in play, more ministry is meant to get done. The saints are meant to get equipped to go out and to impact our city and our county and the world for Jesus. And if the only one sharing their faith during the week has a title or position in this church, then the church isn't functioning as it should. If the only ones who are helping or serving are those who have to have a title or have some sort of position, then friends, the church isn't functioning as it should. Now I want us to close with three brief considerations. What does this mean for all of us together to consider? First, what do we do with this? First, get in the game. (laughs) Pursue biblical ministry. The call of this text is to get in the game Take a step off the bench and get in the game. Ask yourselves, ask ourselves, are we being equipped for the work of ministry? Are we being readied and prepared to live as Jesus commanded? If you remember, the Great Commission was teaching to obey everything Jesus commanded. So it's not just teaching to fill your heads. It's teaching for us actually to do something. And then right after that, he says, remember, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age, which means Jesus thought this was going to take a little while. For us to get this, what role can you play in what God is doing? Maybe, friends, it's signing up to serve on a ministry team. Maybe you know that you've been, that God's been like prompting you to go, I really need to serve in this area. And then the next thing you say is, but. And maybe what God's really wanting to do is just stop the but and go, no, I'm calling you to do this. Go step up. Find a ministry lead. Talk to me, whatever it is. Maybe he wants you to get signed up into into a life group and get plugged into actual community and life together. Or maybe you're beginning to realize, hey, if somebody asks me to share my faith with them, I don't really know if I could tell them. And the first step to beginning that change is to admit 
that maybe you don't know that and it's time to grow to learn more of how to do that because the gospel calls us not to fill a seat, but to fill the world. Get in the game. Pursue biblical ministry. Second, the call is to get qualified. Pursue biblical character. Pursue biblical character. Hear me here. These requirements for elders and deacons are not simply something that those aspiring to leadership should consider living out. But rather, these are characteristics that are simply meant to tell you what a mature Christian looks like. I want you to know there's nothing uber, uber, like, special that goes on in most pastors' homes other than them just being faithful, mature biblical Christians. You know how many people have, I've had people that go, well, you you mean you don't have like visions from God on your back porch? No. And if I do, it's because I ate something the night before I shouldn't have eaten. And that wasn't from God. That was, no. The people that lead God's church are simply mature Christians. If you want to know what a mature Christian is meant to look like, if if you're like, well, what does maturity look like? Look at elders and deacons. Look at the qualifications that are there. And in some sense, what's there is very natural. But God gets us there through supernatural, through his word, through his spirit at work in us. It's simply looking as much like Jesus as possible. How many of us wouldn't think that maturity looks like leading our families better or being above reproach or Lord being less quarrelsome on Facebook. The character of eldership is something all of us should pursue whether the calling of eldership is something we pursue or not. This is character to be pursued. And finally, third, we're called to take the lead, to pursue biblical leadership. Look with me, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're almost done at verse 14. Look at this. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you. I love this. I love when Paul says, here's why I'm telling you this. I, love, I just love that. He's like, Here, here's why I'm telling you all this. So that, That's right. If I delay, you may know how you ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. He says, hey, I'm writing this to you so you know how the church will function. So you're not left with questions because the church matters too much to get it wrong. Notice he says, it's the household of God. Who would want to get their household wrong? It's the assembly of the living God. It's the pillar and the buttress of truth, the pillar that's founded, that, that, the, that it's founded on and the buttress that holds it up. And this matters because the church matters, because our mission matters. Because as we've seen over the last week, because of what the church is and because of what the church is meant to do, how it's structured matters. Let me say this, there are likely people in this room that God is calling to some sort of leadership, whether into a, like a deaconing kind of role of a particular area of service, or some, God may even be moving in your heart to aspire toward eldership. And I would tell you that if that is happening today, it's the Holy Spirit calling you to potentially take that leap. Maybe you, maybe you even have right now somebody in your mind that you're like, Man, they would really be good serving here. And God's not going to leave you alone about that. And that would be just a call to, if you have, have thought and somebody's on your mind, or maybe you yourself have had this burden to come and talk to me or one of the elders as, and to, to begin to think through and pray about what that might look like. Or maybe there's some, some way you can step up and help our ministry leads. Let me tell you, are some of the busiest people in the world. And if you need to ask, do they need help? Yes, they need, they need help. I don't care which one you ask. They all would love for you to step in and serve in whatever way possible because one person can't do everything and one person can't do it forever. Others of us, I think, are simply invited to embrace the biblical model of leadership and understand why we do what we do in the first place. You know, there's many people that will go, well, we, they, we have elders, but I'm not really sure why. Well, now you know why. 
Now you know why we're governed the way we're governed. Now you know why we've, we've thought through this and why we want to let the Bible set the stage and not maybe what might be traditional for what we might want or not. But 1 Timothy 3 closes with what was likely an ancient worship song that the people would have sang uh, back in the day. And it sums up really well what Jesus did for us. And I want to look at that in closing. Look at this. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. We're reminded at the end that we have a mission and a message to proclaim. Great indeed, we confess, is this very mysterious reality. God has, made, has become flesh. He's been displayed to be both God and man through his ministry and the power of the Spirit. It was seen by angels. It's been proclaimed in the world and will be proclaimed among every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation. He was taken up into glory and he gave his church a commission into the world. Jesus died, yes, to save individuals from hell and to set us into right relationship with God, but he also died to set his people into a family of faith. He didn't die so you could just have you and him walking together forever, but that you might walk with other people. Recall where we began. Acts 20, 28, Jesus has obtained the church with his own blood. He died to build a community and a community with a mission that matters. So friends, we should take leadership seriously and we should consider and ask ourselves, are we leading and and are we structured and governing the way Jesus would call us to? Jesus has died and risen again to save a people from their sins and to restore us into right relationship with God and with one another. And and if you've never taken a step forward in repentance and faith and received this good news and been set right with God, you can do that this morning. That's what the gospel is, is that even though our sins are great and God is holy, that he's displayed and demonstrated his love for you and that while you were yet sinners, Christ died. And he didn't stay dead. He rose again so that you would follow in the same path. Sure, a life of suffering, but one that ends with an empty grave, an empty tomb. And this gospel matters, and that's why the church matters. The local church is governed by Jesus, led by elders, served by deacons, with ministry carried out by members, and may we give ourselves fully toward God's plan for the world, which is the local church. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, you love us enough to give us specifics as to how you would want your people to live together as the household of faith. You love us enough not to leave us to traditions or to shifting business practices to know how your people ought to be governed. But Lord, you've you've given us instructions about leadership. You've given us something for every Christian to aspire to, to be above reproach, blameless, not quarrelsome, not violent, not consumed with, with love for possessions. And Lord, help us by your spirit to pursue that. But you've also given us a community of faith to grow in, to live with, to be consumed in the mission of. And Lord, may we see ourselves as a part of this. May we see that we have a role to play, a position to play, whether it has a title or not, in your work in the world. You've not saved us to fill a seat, but to fill the world. And may we see our place in this. May you If there's anybody here who's never encountered you in a true way or seen their full role that you have for them in the world, that you would prompt that in them. Awaken right now just a a deep desire to no longer be apathetic toward your call on our life, but to embrace it fully 
and to run headlong toward all that you would have for us. And Lord, I ask and pray that your spirit would, would call out for, you know, more men to step up to be elders and overseers, to more people to serve as deacons, and, and all of us to step into the game and to get off the bleachers. And I ask and pray that you would help us all no longer to be spectators, but to be a core part of the team that you're building. And we ask and we pray this all in Jesus' name. save us, but to set us into families, to give us uh, leadership and call us to uh, equip, to be equipped together to do the work of ministry. Thank you, just as a note before we close, for your uh, generosity, for your giving here. I think we've got both baskets at the front and the back, and as always, online giving and everything with that available. But we close our service with a benediction, a blessing for the road from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.